Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thank you, Alan, and good evening. I'm Fred Paul, and you're watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, just when you thought the new government couldn't blame anything else on its predecessor, up pops climate change minister Chris Bowen to criticise Morrison's team for, well, can you guess? Quote, we know that in lieu of a climate or energy policy, the previous government relied on a pandemic and drought to reduce emissions. Unquote. Oh, the horror. Emissions went up by 1.5% in the year to March, and Bowen's razor-sharp political instinct immediately identified an opportunity. The man's a political machine. He went on, quote, while the impact of this neglect can't be turned around overnight, the Albanese government is getting on with the job of creating the market signals and reforms necessary for a booming Australian economy on a trajectory to a net zero by 2050, unquote. Well, if Europe today is any indication, people living in Bowen's booming economy in 2050 will be roaming the highways of the nation, reminiscing about the days when there were cars around to provide them with roadkill to eat. I'll have more to say about that in my editorial in a minute. We've also got Professor David Flint to talk about the voice to parliament and former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman to talk about corporate wokeism. So let's get into it. Now, a little over a century ago, a generation of Australian men signed up to sail off to Europe and fight in the First World War. These men had little doubt about why they were fighting. As soon as war was declared in Europe, Prime Minister Joseph Cook only the sixth Prime Minister of the Young Federation declared at a meeting in Melbourne, quote, the empire is at war and therefore Australia is at war, unquote. The Melbourne Argus newspaper reported from the meeting, quote, there never was a war where the moral forces were stronger and more prompting than this, unquote. There was some ensuing debate about whether the government should enforce conscription and two referendums were conducted on the matter, but by the end of the war, more than 400,000 men had voluntarily enlisted and 62,000 of them died. The Argus also made this quote, in Australia, we had no experience to guide us in these matters, but he, Cook, believed we would win through with credit, unquote. Regardless of what you think about the First World War, there is a moral certainty about that statement that is rare these days, even among the most opinionated people. Decades of relative peace and prosperity have lulled us into forgetting that sometimes our civilization needs to be defended. 
That Argus quote is pertinent again because Europe is in a similar situation today. Not that we are as aware of it as the Australians of a century ago were aware of the German threat at the time. Europe is dying today. The lifeblood of civilization, which is oil and gas, are being turned off and the consequences are already catastrophic. In Berlin, the demand for firewood is so high that you can't even buy it anymore. So people are going into the forest and chopping down trees to heat their homes. The irony of this, people chopping down trees to stay warm, will go right over the heads of the environmentalists who helped create this situation because they don't care about other people's suffering as long as they enjoy the fleeting feeling of moral vanity they get from preventing resource companies digging up fossil fuels. Who cares if trees are being chopped down? At least the gas is staying in the ground. In Poland, people are queuing up for days, sleeping in their cars to buy coal from coal mines. In Scotland, a front page newspaper headline warned rural readers they faced the choice of either freezing or starving this winter because fuel and food, fuel and food are so expensive they won't be able to buy, afford to buy both. In Britain, 70% of restaurants are expecting to close this winter because they won't be able to afford the fuel to run the business. What happens when those restaurateurs go home? How will they pay to heat their own homes? Wholesale price of gas futures in Europe is now at 300 euros per megawatt hour for early next year, up from 30 euros at the start of last summer. The response from European politicians has exposed their utter incompetence. They are applying price caps to fuel, so consumers aren't exposed to the worst of the price rises. But who pays for the fuel then? Do governments just print more money? Nobody knows because nobody has a plan. Politicians blame the high prices on COVID restrictions, which they imposed, and the war in Ukraine, which they helped start by pushing NATO further and further east despite warnings from Russia. But the real issue is supply, which is why the analogy to World War I is so pertinent now in Australia. Australia is sitting on the world's largest deposit of uranium, but we are only the third highest exporter of it behind Kazakhstan and Canada. We're also sitting on 160,000 megatons of coal. Last year, we exported a mere 0.1% of it. We have a small percentage of the world's gas deposits, but are extracting only a tiny portion of that. Why? The answer is the same one you would have got in Europe before this crisis began. Climate change. Fossil fuels cause droughts, floods, cyclones, and the latest, childhood obesity. In fact, there is hardly a single adversity in this world that hasn't at some stage been attributed to climate change. And because of the need to tackle climate change, Europeans are now facing starvation and freezing in the dark this winter. If we don't call this insanity out soon, our civilization will wither and die. And yet tomorrow, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will open a so-called jobs summit that will, among other things, quote, maximize jobs and opportunities from renewable energy 
and tackle climate change, unquote. Meanwhile, Europeans are paying eye-watering prices for the resources that we are leaving buried in the ground. But it's not just the extraordinary profits we could be making from these resources that we are ignoring. Those men who sailed off to Europe a century ago did so because they understood the debt they owed to European culture. The Australia of that era might seem less sophisticated from our more worldly, refined perspective, but they sure knew where their cultural roots laid. In the rush to assimilate, assimilate into Asia, we have forgotten that everything we love, our music, art, food, values, literature, fashion, language, humour, and even our laws and institutions are all European. To help Europe now, we don't even need to send young men off to die. We just need to dig up more coal and gas and uranium and make profits from selling them. But instead, we're buying solar panels and windmills from China. One of the defining characteristics of wokeism is the determination not to offend. Well, not to offend anybody who isn't a straight white taxpayer anyway. So here are two prime examples, and we hope we don't put you off your dinner. The Center for Disease Control in the United States, the organization that set the standard for harsh lockdowns on ordinary people during COVID, has just released its guidance regarding monkeypox. You remember monkeypox? Some governments and media organizations tried to beat it up into COVID 2.0 until it became apparent that you can only catch it if you have gay sex. But rather than tell gay men to cease the behavior that exposes them to the virus, the CDC says, get vaccinated and quote, avoid having sex. Yeah, that's right. You make the decisions about the risks you take because being gay means you are so much more discerning about your health decisions than those stupid straight people who had to be locked up to protect them from COVID. Meanwhile, in Canada, woke Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this week released his, his quote, first federal 2SLGBTQI plus action plan to continue building a more inclusive future with pride, unquote. In it, he said, quote, Canada gets a little bit stronger every day that we choose to embrace and to celebrate who we are in all our uniqueness, unquote. Well, I'm not sure Canadians did any choosing about this. It looks like Trudeau imposed all of it on them regardless. And speaking of choosing, the Australian government on August 4 announced it had bought 450,000 doses of the monkeypox vaccine. You paid for it, but you didn't choose it. I emailed the Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, last week asking why we bought these vaccines against a perfectly preventable disease and how much they cost. What would they have cost, do you think? A lazy couple of mil, 10 mil, 20? Don't ask me. Butler didn't reply. The forces of wokeism are nothing if not tenacious. They don't sit around waiting for an election so they can implement their grand utopian dreams. They infiltrate all types of institutions and alter them from within to suit their purposes. They long ago took over our education system, which has for decades been churning out generations of kids brainwashed into thinking Western civilization is oppressive, 
that human activity is destroying the planet and that gender was dreamed up by children's authors selling fairy tales. Now they're taking over the world's boardrooms. Some of the biggest companies in the world are now run by people with messianic complexes about their duty to reshape global society. The executives with the most temptation to impose their political opinions on their business decisions are the ones who run investment or superannuation funds. The only product these executives are selling is the return they achieve from the investments they have under management. They know a certain section of their clients will be happy to see lower returns if the investments are in woke projects that will supposedly save the planet from destruction. As for the other investors, well, as long as the returns hit a reasonable rate, few of them will complain or even notice. Well, that's the theory anyway. Across the United States, state governors and attorneys general are fighting back against this corporate wokeness, banning funds that don't adhere to their fiduciary duties. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently said, quote, we want to stop these masters of the universe from trying to do through economic power, what they can't achieve at the ballot box, unquote. Arizona Attorney General Mark Brovnich has said the preoccupation these funds have with ESG, or Environment, Social and Governance, the holy trinity of corporate wokeism, is, quote, destroying the American dream, unquote. Well, one Australian who's been looking into this is Campbell Newman, the former Queensland Premier who's now with the Liberal Democrats. Campbell, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you again, Fred. Now let's start with the extent of ESG. How common is it for executives to allow woke politics to affect their decisions? Well, I'm afraid, I think it's um, in, in Western countries now, mate, it's uh, pervasive. Uh, it's certainly here in Australia, <clears throat> and I know we'll talk about that in more detail. You just referred to the United States, but it's clearly there in, in Western Europe uh, and in the United Kingdom. So th this has been sort of bubbling along for probably two decades now. And now these people who've, I suppose, grown up with this are in positions of significant power. And they've got power, Fred, because they actually have the money. Um, and they are actually using that um, that sort of financial power now to direct play. But as you've said, there are uh, various jurisdictions in the United States, at last count that I saw, about 19 different states who are pushing back. And it's interesting to note whether anybody in Australia will do that. And I'm sure you want to talk about that. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. But I just, I just want to know, I mean, we've all heard the phrase, go woke, go broke. Do these woke projects invariably cost investors money? I'm saying, you know, like, I mean, say, for example, BlackRock invests only in environmental causes and doesn't invest, doesn't or, or is reluctant to invest in resource companies. Does that mean BlackRock and companies or funds like it are less profitable? Well, look, I think there's two aspects to this. The first thing is that question you've asked about the level of profitability of, if you like, ESG projects. My view uh, today on that would be it remains to be seen. Uh, and the point that the um, you know political uh, figures in the United States are making who are pushing back is that they actually could be uh, earning higher profits by investing in non-ESG projects. And I think that's far uh, more the question because... You know, these people are looking after a lot of money. BlackRock looks after $10 trillion 
Uh, it's not all their own money, only about $150 billion, staggering amounts of money all the same, um, uh, only about uh, only $150 billion is their actual money, but they're, they're looking after funds to, to pay people's pensions. And so the position of the US um, uh, politicians who are pushing back is, you know, you have a solemn duty to maximise returns for people who are saving for retirement. And by going ESG, you are going to achieve lower returns. So I think that's that can be that actually can be demonstrated. Um, but the other aspect to it is the I suppose the question about how environmentally responsible some of these investments are, because you know while they're saying no to, for example, investing in coal or gas or oil, they're absolutely saying they've got to invest in the new economy's minerals. So what well, are those minerals? Can I just stop you there? Like can, yeah. Sorry, can I just stop you there? Before we move off coal and gas and oil and so on, I mean, I've just read that the, the price of gas in Europe is now 10 times the price. Well, uh, the futures for gas at, at the start of next year will be 10 times the price it was at the start of last summer, northern summer. Now, there's clearly, there's a lot of gloom and doom around Campbell, but there's clearly a lot of money to be made in resources oh, right now. Well, well here's the, well, I'm, glad you, you, I'm glad you pulled me up there because that actually really completes the point. Right now, if you're an investment manager who's saying, no, I won't invest in gas or oil or coal, you're actually leaving money on the table for the people you're meant to be looking after in terms of their retirements because that's where there have been huge returns and I mean, you know, we've all seen the we've all seen the, uh, the the spots on the TV news where you know the journalist has been talking about the obscene returns of say oil companies or you know gas companies. Well, you know, if if you're saving, if you're looking after people's savings for retirement, to turn your back on those things at the moment means you're not actually achieving the best outcome for them in terms of terms of return for their retirement. And well, that's let's, the thing let's look at the that, outcomes. Uh, the, the, the US politicians are doing, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. Let's look at the outcomes that they are achieving, which aren't that great. I mean, for example, a, a company might not invest in resources, but will invest in mining, for example, of lithium or paying child slaves to dig up co cobalt for car batteries. Campbell, is it possible that these companies, by investing in projects that are supposedly woke, these company executives are just a bunch of hypocrites anyway? Well, there's the hypocrisy, but there's also, um, I believe, a bit of a case that's growing in terms of misleading uh, investors and invest in, in misleading the community. Because let's just take an example uh, of, uh, of a battery for a Tesla motor car. Now we've been told that's clean and green, but these and these are US figures, so they're in pounds. But you know, a battery for the Tesla has 25 pounds of lithium, 60 pounds of nickel, 44 pounds of manganese, 30 pounds of cobalt, 200 pounds of copper, and uh, 400 pounds of al aluminium, steel, and plastic, etc. And so these are minerals. Uh, these are commodities that have to be mined and processed. Uh, using toxic chemicals, um, sometimes in, in, in jurisdictions where they don't have the workplace health and safety standards uh, of the West. Uh, and I'm talking, of course, about Africa, uh, which is you know, where most of the cobalt comes from currently. And, you know, we are, what, what we need to be telling people, if, if that's the way we're going, and if these fund managers are going to back this, at least they should have the honesty to say, we're going to have to dig a heck of a lot of stuff out of the 
out of the, the, the earth of this planet to actually build this stuff. Yeah. Um, so there will be holes everywhere. So we there's a certain bank in Australia, I won't mention their name today, but there's a certain bank that leads with an ad at the moment showing mining, happens to be a coal mine, but the, the, the clear implication is that digging holes in the ground is, is not good. And I'd say to you, well, if, if you're going to back the renewables sector, you need to be honest, you need to tell people that building windmills, solar panels, building batteries for cars and, and, and electric vehicles, that comes at a cost too. And they're not doing that. They're simply telling people that somehow it's clean and green. And my message uh, today in this interview is everything, everything, yeah. Fred, comes with an impact. Yeah, even the, even the feeling of sanctimony for driving around in a Tesla. <laughs> now, so there's a, fight back going, there's a fight back going on in the US now. Which states are these and what's their strategy to get back at these ESG companies, Campbell? Well, I think there's um, the, the, the main thrust from what I'm reading, well, there's probably three ways I'd, I'd put it to you. The first way is they're pointing out, like uh, I think it was the Attorney General in Arizona was pointing out that they have a fiduciary duty, these fund managers, people like BlackRock, to invest in a way that maximises returns to the people uh, who uh, have parked their money for their retirement with these funds. And so there's a pushback there saying, well, if you don't, if you're, if you're pushing alternatives, if you're engaging in this ESG sort of uh, work policy, then you're actually leaving people shy of the retirement funds they should have, and you failed at law to do what you have to do. There's a second sort of branch to that where they're also encouraging activism. So there's encouraging people who are in members of super funds to start asking questions about how their money's being managed. Uh, and then there's another uh, strand to this where people uh, in these positions are saying, well, you know, I'm, you know, hypothetically, I'm the governor of such and such a state. Uh, our economy is based on oil or it's based on gas or it's based on coal. Uh, if you want to do business in this state, if you want to actually, uh, for example, um, tender for financial services provision, uh, say you're, you're a bank, uh, if you want to sort of uh, turn your back on what we do in this state, uh, then, you know, you won't do business here. Or alternatively, um, you know, we we um, you know we we will not be having the state's pension funds uh, with your organisation. Uh, and I I should say to 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 yourself and, and viewers, I mean, when I was Premier of Queensland, uh, Deutsche Bank said they wouldn't uh, back coal projects uh, anymore. And I said, well, well, we don't want Deutsche Bank to tender for uh, uh, you know anything in Queensland that involve you know involves. You know, involves the government, so that's what people can do. And that was that was almost ten years ago that I took that stand. Uh, there's a final sort of element to this, which I think is also important. I was alluding to before that I would say that the whole ESG um, pitch of these big fund managers is that it's clean and green, and it's it, it comes without you know the costs of if you like the fossil fuels fuel industry, and I say that that's false and misleading. And that needs to be called out too. So, for example, in Australia, someone might want to go to the ACCC if, if a fund manager was sort of putting that forward to investors, to shareholders, uh, to the community, and was making these pronouncements that somehow what they were doing was environmentally superior to the alternative um, without context. Well, I would say that that could be false and misleading under Australian consumer law. 
Well, you've just outlined four strategies to fight back against this ESG uh, madness. What's the likelihood of, of uh, the, the, the side of sanity winning this battle, Campbell? Well, look, I'm going to watch the United States really keenly. I think that's the first thing. And I think that will also then, if there's some wins over there, that will give uh, people in this country. And there's a lot of people. There is a silent majority, uh, particularly the grey-haired uh, people in the, from the business community who are watching with horror about what we're embarking upon to really take away any advantages that we've had from being you know, uh, uh, an energy-rich country and actually sort of, uh, you know, prostrate ourselves, you know, abase ourselves to this, you know, this altar of ESG. And we are going to hurt our country. We're going to impose higher costs on, you know, just ordinary people in the community who just try to live their lives. And so hopefully if the states uh, get, um, some of those state jurisdictions in the US actually get some uh, um, traction on this stuff, that will give heart to people in Australia. Yeah, I'm hoping that people will stand up and be counted on this. Look, and by the way, don't get me wrong, Fred, I, I have my own residence. I have solar panels. Uh, I have a battery. I found it a very interesting thing to get involved in. But I make the point, I've had to pay to do that. And I'm not going to stand there, stand there, stand here hypocritically and say, you know, that there wasn't an impact of my decision. I could have bought, you know, I could have continued to just buy from the grid, coal-fired in Queensland in the main. There's a hole in the ground in multiple locations in Queensland. There are CO2 emissions. You know, you can, we can all have a view on that. Yep. But I chose to actually go, go down a route where I wanted a bit of energy self-sufficiency. But I know there's a hole in the ground somewhere or a few holes in the ground that have actually been the, the source of the, the, the ingredients the big, to my well, the energy self-sufficiency. So I... Yeah, I, I, don't, I hate hypocrisy, Fred, and I hate um, people, particularly in uh, uh, politics and the media in Australia, pretending it doesn't come at a cost to ordinary men and women. Well, the big difference between you and these ESG corporations, Campbell, is that you were spending your own money. That's what the difference is. Absolutely. Um, we had so much more to talk about, but Campbell, we've run out of time. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, thanks heaps, Fred, and look forward to next time. I will too. Thanks. That's former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman, who's now with the Liberal Democrats. The welfare of Australia's Indigenous people is too often measured in meaningless virtue signals rather than actual improvements in standards of living. As the wonderful new Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price said in her maiden speech, quote, my goal is to halt the pointless virtue signalling and focus on solutions that bring real change to the lives of Australia's most vulnerable citizens." Unquote. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is, is asking us to endorse one of the most flagrant examples of virtue signalling in the entire history of Indigenous relations in this country. His voice to Parliament, which he plans to put to a referendum during his first term in office, will propose a body of Indigenous advisers to be included in the Constitution and whose voice will have some unspecified authority over the democratically elected parliament. Albanese hasn't given us much more detail than that because he knows that the idea is dead set bonkers and that the finer details of it, of how it will work or not work, as the case may be, will only confirm this. 
Neither has he explained how this voice will improve the hellish conditions some of our Indigenous brothers and sisters are experiencing right now in remote townships. How did we reach this point where the Prime Minister of the nation can indulge in a massive exercise in virtue signalling at the expense of policies that will actually improve the lives of our most vulnerable? Well, to understand that, we need to understand what happened at the referendum in 1967. This moment in our history is widely misunderstood. It wasn't the huge leap forward it is often thought to be. In fact, in some ways, it inhibited the improvement of Indigenous lives, although it did entrench the ability of politicians to spout virtuous platitudes. If we really want to narrow the gap, then we need to understand the mistake we made in 1967. To help us through this is Professor David Flint, whose expertise in this area began decades ago. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but as a young law graduate in Sydney in 1970, Professor Flint volunteered at the new Aboriginal Legal Service, where he defended Indigenous people, sometimes against charges that were clearly trumped up by cops looking for someone easy to blame. Professor Flint, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, David, the popular misconception is that the 1967 referendum was about including Indigenous people in the census. Some people even think it also gave Indigenous people a vote. That's clearly not correct. The referendum did two things. What were they? It did two things. It firstly did away with repeal section 127, and that was the section which said that the Aboriginal natives, by that they meant what uh, they then described as full-blood Aboriginals, they were not to be counted for the purpose of the Constitution. This was for the purpose of determining the number of seats that each state would be entitled to have in the Parliament. It was obviously going to be difficult to count Aboriginal people because most at that time were nomadic. And there was a difficulty in really knowing how many there were. There were also fears that they might be used, their votes might be used by graziers who were employing them uh, on a part-time basis, a casual basis, and that they would use their votes. There was a fear about that. So it was decided not to count them, if they were full-blooded, in for the purposes of the Commonwealth. It had nothing to do with the census. The census continued. The censuses of the Aboriginal people were continued by the states and they were most meticulous. It is completely wrong to assume that. The second one was to change the race power, which is in, they're called placetums, in placetum 26. And that is the power of the Commonwealth make, to make laws with respect to any race. That's not a racist provision in the sense that it's understood today. By race, they didn't mean only those who weren't European. By race, they could have included, for example, Germans, if they so wished, if they wished to make a special law in relation to a particular race. Now, that provision excluded laws with respect to the Aboriginal people. And the reason was the Constitution was really a framework of how the country should federate. Certain powers would belong to the Commonwealth, to the central government, and other powers would be primarily exercised by the states. They'd be reserved to the states. Okay, can we, can we just um, uh, backpedal a little 
to the misunderstanding about the census. I think the phrase they, they, they used was the reckoning of the population. And that, let's just to be clear about this, that was to clarify how many people were living in electorates and how many seats how many seats there would be in the federal parliament as a, as a result. Is that correct? That's right. The constitution provided that you determined the number of seats each state would have from the size of the population. They could have done it from the size of the, the people who could actually elect those who were on the rolls, but they didn't. They did it from the number of people in each state. And they were, there were debates about how many people there were in each state, how many Aboriginal people. Their estimates at the time said that the largest number of Aboriginal people were actually in South Australia. And uh, South Australia was the most liberal in relation to voting. Not only could uh, the Aboriginal people vote in that state, but also women, Aboriginal women could vote in that state, whereas White women, for example, couldn't vote in Victoria or New South Wales. Well, that, that's an interesting anecdote from all of this. I mean, Australia was so racist that Aboriginal women had voting rights before some white women did. Yes. Our, uh, the black armband view yes. of history is and not entirely clear. But can, can we just move, move on to the other aspect of the referendum? And that is that it empowered the Commonwealth to pass laws specifically pertaining to Indigenous people, and that those laws would override any laws that the states passed. Now, I believe Robert Menzies objected to this. So Menzies himself had retired from uh, Parliament and from the Prime Ministership the previous year. But Menzies thought this was going too far, didn't he? Yes, he thought it was inappropriate. Menzies' view, and this was confirmed to me by Reg Withers, who was a, a minister in the Menzies government, he, he confirmed that what Menzies thought was if you had a federal power which overrode the states, what would happen? You would create a terrible monstrosity, a bureaucratic monstrosity in Canberra. He saw what would happen in relation to ATSIC, for example. He saw the dangers of giving the power. And his comment was you can do everything you want to for the advantage of the Aboriginal people from a Commonwealth level by giving the states the money, because under Section 96, the Commonwealth is entitled to give money to the states on condition. So you could make a condition about how the states could spend that money in relation to the Aboriginal people. So Menzies' view, and this came out in a bill, there was a bill for a referendum which was to only repeal the section about counting the Aboriginal people. That was the one which was probably the most offensive for the modern Aboriginal people who were no longer nomadic people. There's no justification in having such a provision if there ever were. And the cabinet was united on that view and a bill was passed by both houses to that effect, so that we would have had a sensible bill in relation to the referendum, which kept the power with the states but meant that uh, the counting provision would disappear. Now, that bill was passed by both houses, but when Harold Holt became prime minister, he withheld it. He decided not to go ahead with it, and he decided to go ahead with a referendum that covered both matters, 
the, including the one that Menzies foresaw as creating a dangerous situation, a bureaucratic monstrosity instead of helping the Aboriginal people. Well, that bureaucratic monstrosity has now led to the current Prime Minister proposing something absurd. I mean, would, would you go so far as to say that Robert Menzies predicted or foresaw what Anthony Albanese would eventually propose? Sir Robert certainly foresaw the dangers of what the Prime Minister is proposing, because what is being proposed in itself has all sorts of dangers, particularly in relation to the blank checks it will give not only to the Parliament, but especially to activist judges. It's not only that, it will also distract the elites from having to do anything about the real problems that Senator Price identifies in the, particularly in the Northern Territory, they won't be dealing with those real problems. Instead, it will be virtue signaling. People will be repeating over and over the formula about the recognition of the traditional owners, that sort of thing. The waving of flags, a flag only recently uh, contrived. All of these will become the way in which the elites will think that they're doing something wonderful for the Aboriginal people. And the same problem which is going on, has been going on since Nugget Coombs, that is the problem which is occurring in the remote areas where there's terrible violence and there's terrible sexual abuse, both of women and children, beyond anything acceptable in a modern society, that will continue unabated. The voice to parliament divides Australians into indigenous and non-indigenous. Now, essentially, in my opinion, that's a racist uh, a proposal. But let's just draw the connection to 1967 here. Isn't that what we did in 1967? We created a, a, an ability for the federal parliament to pass laws that were specific to one race of Australians. Isn't that racist too? It is, and, and indeed, before they hit on the idea of the voice, there was a strong move to repeal uh, Placetum 26, but then to institute another section in the Constitution which would give the Commonwealth the same power. So there was a strong move to repeal Section 26, believe it or not. So it's Placetum 26, and this, this was uh, foolish because this is the section which entitled the Commonwealth to make laws with respect to the Aboriginal people. So they put in another provision, another section, which would be very confusing. They abandoned all that in favour of the voice. Okay, so around the same time as the 67 referendum was the emergence of the land rights movement. Now, and, and the federal government responded, you know, by granting land rights, which eventually led to, or, or sort of acknowledging land rights, which led to Mabo and so on. Now, why, in your opinion, is the land rights movement a flawed concept, David? Well, it is flawed because when this case, the, the Mabo case, eventually came to the High Court, the argument that the case was concerning people in the Torres Strait who were agriculturalists. They had a farm, they had a farm plot, they grew crops on that particular plot. That was the plot that they understood to be theirs. And the case was a dispute as to whether that ownership should be recognised. What the High Court did in a case of uh, incredible virtue signalling, the High Court decided that they would apply that to the whole of the Commonwealth. They would apply that 
to parts of the Commonwealth where the Aboriginal people had been nomadic and whatever ownership they had related to the areas they moved around in, which they regarded as the areas where they were entitled to move. Now, to give title there was not in the case before the High Court, and that was one of the serious mistakes. It should have been just left to the states to determine, but this gave the, the, the Commonwealth the power to introduce native title legislation, which has had great difficulties. Like everything Canberra does, they make a mess of it. Particularly when they move outside of the powers which were intended particularly for Canberra. And remember, the principal reason, the thing that really drove federation, Sir Henry Parks made this point, and that is the defence of the Commonwealth. They knew that the colonies, the six colonies, self-governing, could not by themselves defend themselves. They needed a strong British presence. But they knew that Australia could best do this by being united and having a single Defence Command. And that is what the Commonwealth, that is the principal purpose of the Commonwealth. And what have they done? They've left us at this stage virtually defenceless. And now we have people like Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa Price pleading with the federal government to do something practical, and all they come up with is the voice. And they've retreated in those areas where there was some progress being made. That is the control of drink, for example, in the Territory. David Flint, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's David Flint, who I should add will be hosting his own show from Friday week on ADH TV. The show will be a long form interview and his first guest is none other than former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. You won't want to miss that. That's 9pm Friday, September 9. And before I go, Meghan Markle has popped her head up again in recent days. She's the new age Wallace Simpson and yep, She's still hating on the royal family. She ought to get over herself. In an interview with The Cut magazine, Markle begins by saying, quote, I'm like, so excited to talk, unquote. It raises the question, when does she ever not talk to or bag out the royals? Markle says that being an actress was good preparation for her royal life, quote, my entire job was, tell me where to stand, tell me what to say, tell me how to say it, Tell me what to wear and I'll do it. And I'll show up early and I'll probably bake something for the crew, unquote. Oh, shock horror, what a tough life. But what about this one? When talking about why her, she and Prince Harry decided to buy the $15 million home they bought, she answered, quote, one of the first things my husband saw when we walked around the house was those two palm trees. See how they're connected at the bottom? He goes, my love, it's us. And now every day when Archie goes by us, he says, hi, mama, hi, papa, <laughs> unquote. Yes, you heard it right. Harry and Megan are like two entwined palm trees, apparently. But the corny nature of her answers didn't end there. On their relationship, she said, quote, we're like salt and pepper. We're always moving together, unquote. But I think this doozy is, this is the doozy. Markle claims a South African actor said to her, quote, I just, need you, I just need you to know, when you married into this family, we rejoiced in the streets the same way we did when Nelson Mandela was freed from prison, unquote. How can anyone say that with a straight face? 
Meghan Markle comparing her marriage celebrations to that of the release of Nelson Mandela and an anti-apartheid campaigner who served 27 years locked up on Robben Island? I tell you what, with Meghan Markle, there's more to be pitied than despised. When sycophancy clashes with reality, you get irrelevancy. And Meghan Markle, you are irrelevant. Well, that's it from me tonight. Remember, you can browse the ADH TV streaming service and watch your favorite shows on demand. And remember, tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, Alan Jones makes his return, and I'll see you after his show. Good night.